0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations events podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: I'm Jan Barris, the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S. China Relations. And my job here today is very simple. I want to welcome all of you on behalf of the National Committee and say how pleased we are that you've joined us. And two is to introduce today's moderator. But before I do that, I want to just sneak in, and I haven't been paid for this, but I want to sneak in an advertisement for this absolutely wonderful book that we're going to be talking about this afternoon. I urge all. 300 plus people who have signed up for this event to run right out or sit in front of your computer and type right out (laughs) Um, and and buy or go online and buy this book. It's especially important for those of us who care about the US-China relationship. And to my mind, at least, it is a wonderful antidote to the, what I consider fallacious statements that the last 40 years of engagement between China and the United States have only benefited the Chinese. And that the only reason we started on this engagement plan was to try to turn China into a country just like us. Both of those statements and belief systems I find patently false. And I think this job does a wonderful book in the various chapters And the beautiful writing in explaining just how rich and how fruitful this relationship has been for everyone involved and not just the United States and China. So with that let me turn to my other main task which is introducing today's moderator. I am really pleased to do so because it's someone that I care about a lot and respect very deeply. Her name is Tashi Rabge and her official title is as a research professor of international affairs at george washington university and in that role she directs the multi-nation i'm sorry the research initiative on multi-nation states and the tibet governance lab both of these initiatives the tashi i think founded and conceived and conceptualized herself with input from some friends and help. They are truly, she she and her colleagues are doing cutting edge work on issues of Tibet, Tibet's engagement with the PRC and all of the many very complex aspects of that relationship. And I highly commend her work to you. The other reason I'm very fond of her is that she is a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program and we're very proud to have her. So with that, Tashi, I turn it over to you. And just, again, another plug. Go buy, and not just buy it, but read this book.
0: Thank you, Jen, for that incredibly kind introduction. Um, It's a pleasure to be moderating this event in support of a book that is already a milestone publication, one that we'll we'll be reading far into the future for the detailed knowledge and insight that it provides on the development of Sino-American relations but also for its remarkable timeliness. Because as we all know, we are in a brand new political moment, the likes of which we haven't seen in 50 years. And in this moment, what was once unthinkable is now being announced and declared and discussed around the clock uh, in our global media and all our public spaces, everything from the uncertainties as we spiral into a bipolar world to the inevitability, apparently, of a collision course that we're hearing reported on on a daily basis. And in this rush to define and to label this new political moment, there's been a powerful turn away from engagement, the, pa- the, the sorry, the idea of engagement, and also the language of engagement. But one of the incredible things uh, about this book uh, that we'll be diving in today is how it depicts in such fine detail the complexity and the diversity of all that has been traveling under the banner of engagement. So today we get to hear uh, about this from three leading scholars of U.S.-China relations who've been on the front lines exploring, observing, and sh- uh, shaping basically our understanding of Sino-American relations uh, over the decades. And it's my pleasure to introduce them all to you. Um, actually, they need no introduction, but I'll introduce them anyways. I'll start with Anne Thurston, without whom this book would not exist at all, because somehow she brought it together during the, the pandemic. Um, Anne has been a professor of China studies for the past 20 years at Johns Hopkins SICE after first teaching political science at Fordham University and has been working creatively in China research across organizations like the Social Science Research Council and the National Committee on US-China Relations. She's also been the author and editor behind a number of remarkable books, including Enemies of the People, The Ordeal of China's Intellectuals During the Great Cultural Revolution, and The the Private Life of Chairman Mao, and The Noodle Maker of Kalingbong with the extraordinary Tibetan Gelatendu. We're also fortunate to have one of the contributors uh, to this book, Mary Brown Bullock, join the conversation. Mary is currently the inaugural executive vice chancellor of Duke Kunshan University in China, and previous to this served as president of Agnes Scott College in Georgia. Uh, Earlier, she was a distinguished visiting professor of Chinese studies at Emory University director of the Asia program at the Woodrow Wilson Center and director of the committee on scholarly communication with the people's Republic of China. Mary's most recent publications include The Oil Prince's Legacy, Rockefeller Philanthropy in China and Medical Transitions in 20th Century China. Our final speaker today is the reason why this book was envisioned in the first place. Engaging China came together to honor Professor Mike Lampton who has been steadfast in his commitment to US-China relations and engagement over a decade career in China scholarship. Currently, Mike is a senior fellow at the SAIS Foreign Policy Institute, as well as Professor Emeritus. Prior to his years there and at Stanford and other academic institutions, Mike was also chairman of the Asia Foundation, as well as president of the National Committee on US-China Relations. His most recent book is Rivers of Iron, Railroads and Chinese Power in Southeast Asia. So welcome to you all. Um, And let's start with setting the scene. And we'll start with you, Anne, because I think we can call you the empresario of this book project, <laughs> uh, de facto, right? Oh. Uh, <laughs> the book idea germinated at the Wingspread conference that was titled Five Decades of U.S. Engagement with China, What Have We Learned? That's a great title. So, Anne, can you tell us about what you learned in the experience of maneuvering and shepherding this project through this new moment in American history?
2: Thank you, Tashi. Um, yes, I can, but I think I want to start out. I, I think I want to back up a little bit and just start all over again about how the book came about. Um, and say that to add to you that it came about when Mike Lampton announced that after some 20 plus years at SICE, he would be retiring. And his colleagues at SICE thought that they, wa- they wanted to find a way to honor him in his retirement. And the obvious answer to that for most academics is to produce a shrift. And shrifts, it seems, often turn out to be just glowing praises of the retiring professor, but very little substance. So Mike didn't want a Festschrift. He wanted, if he said, if there was going to be a book in his honor, he wanted it to be a substantive book, a contribution to China studies. And I was charged with that task and agreed to it. And I think um, from the very beginning, because of Mike's role in the National Committee on US China Relations and therefore his role in the whole period of engaging China, um, we knew that the book would be about US China relations. And what I did to begin with was to sort of try to find the best people in the China field, both academics, people in non governmental organizations, people who'd worked with the government. Um, asked them to write uh, chapters, or at this point, not chapters, but papers um, about their own, based on their own particular expertise. Um, I did gather together such a group of scholars, we got funding for the project, and we then held a, this conference that you mentioned at Wingspread in Racine, Wisconsin. So I think we probably had 16 or 17 people there. Um, all of them presented their papers, we discussed all of their papers, um, and at the end of the several days in Wingspread, I think we decided that we we had a book in the making, and it was up to me to edit it and and put it out. Um, editing is a long and tedious task; it may seem easy, but it's not. Um, but um, I mean, it, it was it truly it was very very interesting to me too. It was really really interesting to work with it, and I mean I think the book is very special, and I'll say the two reasons that I think it's special. First of all, is because of the people who contributed to it. I mean, we really were lucky to get just the finest scholars and practitioners of US-China relations. And they all presented, um, you know, fascinating sort of uh, chapters. Um, And the second thing is that we treated the US-China relationship not as a relationship just between two countries, but as a multifaceted relationship between not at not just the country level, but Particularly at the non-governmental organization people-to-people relations, so I think the book becomes much much richer because um, it's not just about U.S.-China relations. It's you know it's about the people and the organizations who were involved in in the U.S.-China relationship. So that's sort of my brief introduction.
0: So Mary and Mike, I encourage you to add to what Anne has just shared, but otherwise, let me first contextualize from your own contributions to the book. Mary, in particular, your chapter on strategic adaptation makes a key intervention by bringing the non-governmental dimension fully into view. And as someone who has lived and worked across so many sectors engaging China beyond government to government, how do you think that we need to be rethinking uh, engagement? And in your analysis, you talk about the hybrid operations that NGOs have taken up. So from your experience uh, and from your research, uh, how can this be mapped on to the next phase of US-China relations?
3: Well, first, let me begin by thanking you, Tashi, for moderating this session, and Anne and Mike. Um, A special word of thanks to Anne. I tell you, the conference was a bit jumbly, actually, Anne. It was, I I didn't see that there were a book could come out of it, but the book did come out, and I have it here. Uh, I'm going to echo what Jan said and what Anne said. You should buy this book. You should read it. I thought I read everything that, existed on US-China relations. This book will, and also as Tashi said, I lived through so many of these events, but this book, I think, brings a substantive reality to it. And I think it particularly speaks to us. So Anne, I thank you and my thank you as well. My own chapter which Tashi mentioned is about social societal relations between the United States and China. And I did call it strategic adaptation. Adaptation because over 40 or maybe 50 years, American foundations, American religious organizations, American NGOs have continually adapted and changed their mission, their work in China. Strategic, I think because they wanted to be there, they felt it was important to be in China. And that changed the nature of what it meant to be strategic changed over time. I think this is part of a section uh, on uh, people to people relations that Ann mentioned, or on the ground relations. It includes uh, articles by Robert Daly on students and health by Yenjoon Kwan. and I think that together we, with three chapters, are important to be read together. What we see is that the the influence began slowly and escalated improbably after uh, tenement. Yeah. And certainly the heyday of American societal relations was in the several years after Tendeman until early let's say 2010. And I but I see a continuum in that, and I think that we all have different kinds of, of um, time frames. The one I'm talking about is that there is a continual time frame with the Chinese society maturing throughout. So it always is getting bigger and better as it goes along. And I think American organizations, American societal organizations have had to deal with uh, a maturing Chinese society. And I do discuss four areas in particular to give some, what can I say, some flesh to the reality of so many different groups. Anyway, I discuss environment, the political, uh, religious, and I use the national committee as an overall overall organization. But in looking at my notes and looking at the book, and as we talked about it, I think that, again, we did not take enough attention. We did not pay enough attention to the extraordinary changes in Chinese society. And I think that any future will have to deal with a very different kind of China. I also focus on the NGO law, the 2017 uh, NGO law. I should emphasize that this law is not unique to China. That is there other countries have similar laws in South Asia and East, what was the formerly East Europe. And also that there are parallel laws that affect Chinese grassroots organizations. I think that changes the nature of uh, non-governmental work in China. And I don't see so many changes once that law is put in effect. Mm-hmm. I, Atasha, I did talk to several people uh, who are in China now, and I found, well, one thing, it's hard to get there. So it is hard to travel back and forth. And I think anything we say about the future has to uh, talk about the future, a post-COVID future. But I was surprised that there were as many Americans still working in China, and that while their thrust has changed, they can no longer work as advocates. They cannot work, Chinese groups can't work as advocates. They are working to improve China's soft power abroad. How how to support Chinese organizations uh, as they go out of China. Clearly, this has pluses and minuses for an American viewpoint today. And so what is different today is that there is an American influence. You can see it wherever you go That influence will change in the future, as I think Mike talks about Uh, in his. I think that there are, we will see more Chinese leadership and you have to decide whether or not you want to be congruent with Chinese priorities. So I think American role will be there in the future. It will be reduced, certainly, but it will remain.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mary. I'm sure we'll be circling back to the issues you've just raised, Um, but first let me invite Mike to give remarks on his highly provocative contribution, which we can only call a eulogy for China engagement. Because that is what it is titled, more or less. Um, So let me also say, Mike, congratulations on all the energy that you've inspired and gathered around you to produce this book that many of us are going to have to read. Um, You've said many provocative things about what is now being called the post engagement era in this book, too, it is called the post engagement era. But we also hear this at the same time engagement as we know it is over, but we're still engaging, aren't we? Mm So there's that. And I'm wondering how you make sense of it, Mike, and how are we to think about engagement in your view?
4: Well, th- thank you very much. And uh, I wanna thank all the people that are on the, uh, this I'll call it a broadcast and uh, allowing us to talk about something that's uh, preoccupied all of us in one way or another for uh, decades. I also do wanna thank my former colleagues, ongoing colleagues at the national committee, I also want to uh, really express my gratitude to Anne for all of her work and vision and wonderful writing. But I also want to thank Madeline Ross and Carla Freeman and Zhao Jin Ji at SAIS, all of whom played uh, important roles in conceptualizing the project and then helping uh, get it funded and uh, the whole logistical dimension of both the conference and. So there were a lot of players here that deserve a lot of of credit. And I want to uh, acknowledge that. And also there were funders uh, largely from the private sector. uh, And I want to thank them. Jerry Kunstadter, the Johnson Foundation and Pete Nickerson in particular. Uh, All of these projects are expensive, require resources. And certainly uh, they made it possible. And I want to express my appreciation Uh, Also, I just want to just, in response to what uh, uh, has been said thus far, say that this book is not about a capital-to-capital relationship, meaning Beijing and Washington. It's about a society-to-society relationship. And if you want to ask what engagement accomplished, it accomplished moving it from our capitals to knitting it together in some fundamental fundamental but not unbreakable ways, our society at many levels across many functional areas. And if I were just to sort of summarize what I think for me the conclusion of of the book is that engagement was not a strategy. Engagement was a happening. It mobilized interests and views and interest groups bureaucracies, localities uh, in both our nations and each developed relations with counterparts that they thought were in their interests. And I've been working on some research on uh, the relationship between Ohio where I started my career uh, and uh, Hubei province. And when Governor Rhodes, an old time Republican politician wanted to build relations in China, He didn't check it out with Washington. He thought in the long run, China would be a market for the machinery industry in Ohio. And eventually the Chinese would get wealthier and invest in Ohio, which indeed they have done. And that was his motivation. It wasn't a foreign policy kind of uh, uh, inclination. So society to society, not a strategy, it was a happening that reflected the converging interest in various sectors. And certainly uh, Mary's chapter talks a lot about education, but universities saw enormous common interests and not just China studies, but the biological sciences, seismology, food science, this, this relationship among universities and research institutions reflected real interest, not a geopolitical uh, strategy. So I think that's one of the the big takeaways I would uh, say that I, I would wanna leave you with. Now, it seems to me at this moment, a first draft of history is being written. I consider this the second draft maybe. But the first draft, it seems to me Uh, has really tried to define the relationship. And Tosh, you asked uh, a question, what has engagement come to mean in US-China relations? And I'm afraid at the moment, the meaning attached to engagement popularly and in that first draft of history is that uh, essentially it was a naive effort to reshape China in our own image. And in pursuit of that mirage in this draft of history, we socialized China to expect special deals. uh, And we provided them with capacities, technological and other, that now have been turned against us. I think that is sort of the dominant storyline out there. And I think this book and the, the the points I just made are sort of the second, um, I think, I hope, more thoughtful approach to what engagement uh, was. Now it seems to me that um, there's several other things you you can say. Uh, one is where where did this relationship begin to go south? And there are a lot of questions and. It, the further you push back your research, the more problems you see earlier. And because we are where we are, we attach special uh, importance to that. But but I think the relationship really became um, uh, increasingly problematic, probably from 2010, uh, when uh, you had the Obama administration. So this isn't something we can entirely lay at the feet of Trump or or for that matter, Xi Jinping. The problems in the relationship go back certainly further than, than Trump and she. And the book spends quite a bit of time talking about what were the early kinds of uh, contradictions. But certainly, uh, I would say uh, Secretary Clinton in Hanoi in June in in uh, uh, 2010, uh, where she essentially put out a marker on the South China Sea, that was an important time. I think when Xi Jinping uh, came into power uh, and he issued his nine points and talked about the kinds of things that would be prohibited in in, uh, curricula and discussion in China was a very important point. I think another important point was 2014 when Xi Jinping created a national security commission. Uh, And uh, a very important point was really throughout the, Um, The U.S., and I'm not criticizing the U.S., I'm just observing, but the U.S. would not sign on to the idea of a new type major power relationship. I think that was a very important statement of the Chinese that they interpreted to mean we would not accept China as a global actor of equal status and so forth. Uh, one other very important thing that pushes that, that where things went south back in time, I think was 1995 and 1996, where uh, essentially uh, 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 Li Donghui had come to uh, Cornell University. The Chinese in 95 and six fired missiles. The U.S. responded with its naval armadas Uh, And at that moment, Jiang Zemin said within 10 years, we're gonna be in a place militarily that uh, we will never be coerced in this way again. So uh, I think that uh, you can see that this was a long developing set of converging actions in both uh, society. Now, I, I will just end by saying one thing and that is What is the most, or not the most, a very fundamental change that's happened? Why do I say, as I think you asked Tashi, engagements as we knew it has changed. I think engagement was really built on the idea of reassurance. We were each reassuring each other and we were trying to do that by building interdependence, I think the idea was, the more dependent we became on each other, the, uh, the higher the cost of conflict would be and therefore conflict would be less likely. Uh, whether that was true, partly true, not true at all, uh, there'll certainly be a debate. But now I think the guiding idea isn't reassurance, it's deterrence. Both societies in thinking about dealing with each other are thinking about deterrence and deterrence is fundamentally about threat. How do you make a threat? How do you make it sufficient to deter the other side? How do you make it credible? And for better or worse, that is a world that, that we live through in the Cold War. And so while I'm careful not to say we're in a new Cold War, I think it's also realistic to say that some of the dynamics that we saw in the Cold War we already are seeing, and I think they're becoming more deeply embedded. I'm As I've been all my life an optimist, and I am optimistic, and I think eventually, and I don't know if eventually is years, decades, or more, I think the cost of the path we're on will grow for both societies and for the world, and new constituencies to reflect those new uh, realities, I think will push us to higher degrees of cooperation. But the question really is, is how much pain are we going to inflict on ourselves and on the rest of the world before we come to that happier day?
0: Thank you, Mike. Uh, it's interesting how you've uh, framed this as the second draft of the, uh, um, Uh, assessing this history of engagement. Uh, One of the things as you read through the chapters, you can feel is the sort of struggling to work out even a timeline. Um, It's not just the the frameworks themselves, but how do we periodize the US-China relations uh, uh, experience? Um, One of the things we learned from the book, I think, is that there is no consensus uh, on the periodization. Um, So I'd actually like to turn our attention to 2018, which is the year that the book was conceived, and which I think will have to be seen as a pivot year itself, partly because that was the first time we started to hear this new dark rhetoric about um, a coming Cold War. Uh, and But also because of something we do not hear nearly enough about, which is what was going on domestically in China in that year. So changes that had little to do with the United States, and that was solely driven by Chinese domestic politics uh, itself, most head spinning, of course, uh, was uh, President Xi Jinping's extraordinary abolition of, uh, sorry, abolishing of the term limits for the presidency of of China. Uh, But there was also the very aggressive shutdown of civic spaces through the implementation of the the new NGO law. So for Mary and and also for Anne, both of of whom have extensive uh, experience in the NGO sector, as you were making sense of things and bringing this book uh, into being, how and to what extent did you see this new darker US political rhetoric on China being attuned to the domestic politics going on inside China?
3: Well, let me begin by saying that I think we had to pay more attention to the upper level state to state relations as a result. Because I think until then, we didn't have to pay as much attention. I think the societal changes would have occurred. Would have occurred regardless of the who was in power in the United States or China. You would have had a growing Chinese civil society. It would have been more closely tied to the state than we are used to. The universities were flourishing. All of those changes were happening. As just as the political scene intruded, you might say, into them. And also, the changes cut down in China. It cut down the freedom to be more outgoing. So the combination of um, a bilateral rhetoric and the Chinese, um, uh, Chinese curtailment of civil liberties were a factor.
4: And I inject a a dimension to this because uh, we talk about domestic politics in China and we talk about the dark changes in China and they've been legion. So not to underestimate that but I don't think you can underestimate the importance of changes in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the degree to which the United States in the beginning of the engagement period, I believe really was, I don't wanna say a normative model, but in terms of governance, I think the Chinese were always amazed at how did such a much small population get such economic wealth, technological evolution and seems to govern itself not badly. And over time, we as a model for, uh, let us just say, gov- good governance, leave aside dem- democracy or not, has gone down. And our handling of the global financial crisis and the domestic economy behind that, even our handling of the Asian financial crisis. I remember going to Capitol Hill with Zhu Ji and, uh, or not Capitol Hill with Zhu Rongji, but talking to Zhu Ji. Uh, with some congressmen visiting China. And uh, he tried to explain why he thought it was really a bad idea to invade Iraq. And you read that over, and you know it looks pretty prescient from the viewpoint here. So I would say we have to look at the uh, increasing confidence that China brings to thinking, well, occasionally we make right decisions and the Americans aren't always right. So I think there's been a sort of shift in in, and particularly now our governance, you know, performance in the U.S. is not terrific, to put it mildly. And so I think we have to look at how we are perceived, how we're performing in the world and domestically, how attractive is that? So the point is that, you know, the Chinese are looking at us at the same time we're looking at them.
0: Very good point. Um, Anne, do you want to chime in here? I know that um, I don't know if you're um, unmuted. um.
2: Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. So I think I'd like to begin to think about what we can do to start helping turn this thing around. Um, It seems to me that we have to begin searching for common ground and finding ways to interact in a more positive way. And I think that that is happening to some extent. Um, there have been meetings between John Kerry, um, who heads the uh, president's climate issues, whatever. I mean, he's a, the representative of that, and he has been talking to his counterpart in China. Um, but I guess I, I really hope that we can find ways to start in small steps to cooperate on issues of common concern, like climate change and um pandemics
0: right so in, engaging in the post engagement era I just want to also um, point out the chapter that Richard Matson um, has contributed um, because he does talk about this the fact that um, the need for the, the the u.s to get its own house in order um, so such that when the rise of China became an inescapable, fact, there was also domestically in the United States, a separate set of dynamics going on that was pretty shocking um, outside of whatever was going on in China, right? Um, so there was this US existential anxiety already. Uh, separately domestically, where China was also separately domestically having its own raging domestic politics. So it's really great to hear what all of you think out loud, but also to read the book, um, to hear how uh, there's a a real um, serious thinking on how to think about all of this. Um, Staying on the topic of the Cold War rhetoric, actually, it was stunning to hear for the first time in 2008, um, this new polemic seeing as we'd never really heard it before, um, but through Vice President Pence's Hudson speech um, and Secretary of State Pompeo's uh, comments everywhere, this new tone was set and it's really um, kind of odd that it required uh, relying on Nixon, right? I think uh, uh, Pompeo especially relied on Nixon to say, this is the time for having this break from the previous um, US approach to China. And Mike, you've written that we are already descending into a period of disorder. Uh, In your assessment, how do we distinguish what's happening now with the Cold War that we knew of um, earlier?
4: Well, uh, as I said, I think one of the similarities between the Cold War and what I see developing is the the broad deterrence kind of relationship, but below that general sort of headline, if you start looking now, one of the uh, phenomenon in the Cold War was what what a lot of people call the action-reaction cycle, how technological innovation in one society drives the military modernization and the other, and each reacts to the other. And so you have this kind of model of technological development driving militarization in both societies and driving each society to acquire more capability, which they see as defensive, but the other society sees as offensive. So I think we're very much in that sense there. On the other hand, there's a much wider recognition than there ever was in the Cold War that the pressing global problems, whether it be pandemics or climate change or just global economic stabilization, you know, the, the, now China is essential to managing these global problems. We don't quote, I don't wanna be misunderstood, but we don't have the luxury of total conflict here. Uh, We've we've got a cooperator. We're all going to be in the soup, whether it's environmentally, economically, uh, or in terms of uh, health, global health. So I I think the balance of, of mutual dependence, interdependence is much greater and more stabilizing now. And it would be my hope that that reality will put some ceiling on the kinds of conflict, and and maybe shorten the period. The Cold War went on for a long time. I certainly hope this is a shorter duration, although I'm not very confident about what short might be. But uh, in any case, I think it, it, there's a difference. I just uh, want to say one other thing. I think one of the important things the book does is try to look at what were some of the, I'll say errors just as a, shorthand, but what, what mistakes were made by, by us in our conceptualization of this? Uh, and I think the Barry Naughton chapter is really very good on this, and I would commend that to uh, everybody. And he, uh, he can speak for himself, but my interpretation is, he says, none of us imagine that China would be where it is economically. Economists thought the market would make things more efficient and lead to growth, but this so outstripped anybody's, even the most fervent pro-market person, would not have predicted this. And what happened is this increasing capability in China got married to nationalism. And that's turning out to be a big problem on multiple dimensions. The other thing as I would say, and this is sort of just my feeling and I think reflected in the book uh, is that we had more faith in institutionalization in China. Take the, you mentioned the the term limits that she has overturned. I think we saw those kinds of institutions and norms and increasing respect for law as more deeply embedded. I remember so many times asking the Chinese, another cultural revolution possible? And at least the more liberal people I talked to said, no, it's not possible anymore. Well, I'm not so sure exactly where the limits on retrogression, let's put it that way, uh, are. And I think what it points out to, and the experience with Trump here, is leaders matter. And the generation who floats to the top in these societies is a crapshoot. You know, uh, Trump came along and hardly anybody here, well, let's say a lot of people didn't expect. Uh, And similarly, I think we kind of, uh, to speak for myself, we thought maybe uh, Xi Jinping was a little more like his father than he was. So we underestimate the importance and volatility of leadership. And I think we exaggerated how easy it might be to institutionalize new patterns.
0: Um, thank you, Mike. Um, it is true that um, outside of what was going on internally in the two different um, countries, there was this new global activism um, in China with the Belt and Road Initiative, with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, they were re- really uh, not only reshaping ec- the economic geography of Asia, but also uh, rewriting the global rules of engagement. So this in itself needs to be um, uh, brought into the conversation. I can see I could see Anne nodding while Mike was speaking, I feel like we should let her um, uh, add a comment. <laughs>
2: No, I'm fine. I like what Mike has to say. I was enjoying
0: listening to him. (laughs) Well, let me say this is such a wonderful opportunity to uh, participate in the conversation. So thank you for those of you um, who have already submitted questions and please do add to the chat if you'd like. Um, But for now, I I do want to raise one question um, about the The politics of the ethics of engagement um because until recently the public conversation on u.s china engagement until this new period that we're in now um has been dominated by a certain fault line and that fault line has been uh between the business community that has been the biggest champions of uh china engagement and um let's say the human rights uh community um that definitely since 1989, which is a long time ago now, it's about 32 years, um, since the Tiananmen massacre have been um, uh, articulating objections. Uh, And uh, remember through the 1990s, the MFN debate raging uh, for a very long time about the trade status for China. Um, So today, what's happened in this new period that we're in is uh, that everything pretty much has realigned. We have very odd political bedfellows now. That's one thing for sure. Um, but we're all aware of all the all that's been unfolding in the so-called uh, autonomous region of Xinjiang. I say so-called because obviously it's the opposite of autonomous. Um, but what we know to be going on there and also what we know to have been the regional securitization of many other places, including Tibet, Inner Mongolia, and so forth, um, where the surveillance of of the population has only escalated over time, Um, there is now a very strange realignment of um, of, uh, the politics. So that we saw recently, uh, during the Trump administration in particular, uh, where uh, traditional voices uh, in one area had to somehow be um, flying the trump flag that i would say a lot of chinese dissidents uh, very conscientious people um have become very publicly assertive uh in this direction so my question to you anne I, in particular because you have spent more time um time in tibet uh doing the work that you do as well as elsewhere, of course, uh, in China. Um, but having that knowledge, uh, how do you see the future of the fault line in um, the ethics of engagement, how these voices are shifting around and what what that may become in the next period ahead?
2: That's a very difficult question. (laughs) Um, It's also a difficult question because I haven't been to China in many, many, many years. And I haven't seen um, Xinjiang or Tibet with my own eyes or my own experience for many years. Um, I do think it's important for us to continue to bring up issues of human rights. Um, I mean, it seems that the, the situation in Xinjiang is becoming increasingly just harsh and untenable. Um, I have. I think we have to be very, very careful about how we raise these issues. That um, we have to make sure that we are getting everything right. Um, I have to say that I personally, as I hear the word genocide used with respect to Xinjiang, and I mean that worries me because to me, genocide is reserved for Nazi Germany and you know, sort of actively killing whole um, you know, a whole society. So I think we have to be very, very careful in how we do this. I also think that we can't you know, that the best we can do is make these um, what make these violations of human rights known to the outside world. Um, I don't think we can really expect that we can change China um, anytime soon. I do take a lot of, um, what, solace, I guess, from the possibility, I've just finished reading David Shambao's book, and at the very end, as he talks about Xi Jinping, I mean, he essentially argues, and I want to agree with him, that Xi Jinping is digging his own grave, that um, eventually, the Chinese people are going, eventually the situation will change to the extent that you know, China is wealthy enough, its people are secure enough that they will begin to demand their own freedoms and their own uh, you know, the changes and uh, improvements in the government. And that if we wait long enough and China does continue to develop the way Xi Jinping wants it to, um, then we may begin to get some political changes. So I'm a long-term optimist.
0: Thank you, Anne. Because we have so many great questions, I'm gonna turn to uh, the audience questions here. Um, Let me start by this question because it does honor the the person who inspired this volume. Uh, So this is for you, Mike. Um, In uh, 2015, you warned Chinese policymakers and China's America watchers that US-China relations have come to a tipping point, but it was mostly dismissed. Looking back, it turned out to be true. How did you come to the conclusion at that time? Do you think the two countries have passed the point of no return? And if it is okay to mention the name um, of the the person who sent the question, it is Liu Huihua from Beijing Language uh, and Culture University.
4: Well, first of all, I would just say, uh, tipping point is, is in my thinking, not the same thing as point of no return and if you're an optimist, I guess you implicitly think there is no point at uh, which there's no point of return or at least improvement. Uh, but your, your generic question is, it was in May of 19, uh, uh, in uh, 2015, I was at the Carter Center and, and gave a speech. Uh, former foreign minister, Li Zhao Sheng was actually sitting next to me and after, uh, and it was a half Chinese audience that had been invited and, and uh, uh, to participate in the conference and then an American audience at the Carter Center is, uh, assembled. Anyway, he leaned over afterwards and said he agreed with that. So I actually, when I think back to that speech uh, and it's apropos of the remarks I just made that this, this problem has been building for a long, time Uh, and actually uh, you know I thought I could have given that speech in retrospect in 2013 (laughs) certainly by 2014 so I I don't see myself as an adventurist in 2015 saying that I sometimes wonder why I didn't see it more clearly uh, earlier so that's but but the long and the short of it is uh, I think uh, by 2015, you could see each society or the, the main actors in each society were alienating the key constituencies to support a, a productive relationship in each society. You know, the Chinese were engaged in business practices that alienated their, their, the, the staunchest part of the American polity on U.S.-China relations, the business community. And in fact, our book has uh, an article by Craig Allen, uh, the president of the US China Business Council, and he makes it clear just how alienated the American business community is now. But that was becoming clear w- way before I gave that talk. Similarly, the uh, Chinese were moving in the South China Sea. Uh, and that, of course, uh, aggravated all of the security oriented people in the US. Uh, with some uh, reason. But I I think also we were continually aggravating the Chinese by close in naval surveillance uh, all along the Chinese coast. Uh, And we upped the frequency of that over time, all of that before 2015. So I don't think it was any special power of observation. I've just always believed that uh, politics is about building coalitions and for the let's say the first 40 years of engagement, you were adding to the positive coalition. But somewhere around 2010, and we don't need to argue about exactly where, but in that era, we began subtracting constituents. And you can't do that forever and maintain the same policy with a a much more, uh, a a much weaker uh, coalition. So, uh, I I, kind of look back on that and say, why did it take me so long to say it?
0: Thank you, Mike. Um, I I also wanted to say, going back to what Anne just mentioned about how difficult it is to uh, be studying in China now. uh, There are a number of questions that came um, about uh, education and research, so I wanted to um, these together, maybe, Mary, um, you can address these issues. One is this uh, from Glenn Shive, the question is, what is the status of the Chinese Ministry of Education reviewing and closing some collaborative programs by Chinese universities and American university counterparts? And the corollary to that on the other side, what is the outlook for the US government uh, relaxing or removing restrictions on PRC students to study and conduct research? Um, and have uh, study employment in the US. And this is from John Thompson.
3: Let me say first about the Ministry of Education. I remember Tashi, this is a long term book. I remember my first trip uh, to the ministry in the late 70s and everything was on hold because they couldn't figure out what to do about sending students and scholars abroad. And that we have gone a long way since then. I think the Ministry of Education today is very powerful. And yes, it does close down certain collaborative ventures but it has been doing so for several years. This is not new. I remember when I was at DKU, I was glad to see some of them close down because they were really shoddy types of collaboration. But today, I think the, the shutting down sends a message. And so it is more a very carefully targeted a closing down of a program here or there as a way sending a message to the host university or the joint venture. I think the joint ventures, there are no new joint ventures. It's too complicated and it is also too political. The Ministry of Education, I think, has become more powerful as a result. And I think that Chinese universities have really come into their own. If we think of the changes in Chinese society, certainly higher ed is one area. Still, still many students come abroad and are coming to America. I looked. Um, I tried to get up-to-date information, and maybe Peggy Blumenthal. I think she has a question here. Maybe she knows. But I think there is no question there is a slowdown in Chinese students coming here. Although American presidents have said that Chinese students are now welcome, but I think universities have set up more of a review and I think it should stay in the hands of the university that they should review and not the government not our government should review what is needed. I think American scholars going to China, have definitely, definitely there is almost no, no American scholars abroad in China today. And that is a result really of a Chinese government decision to close the archives and to make field work almost impossible. Sometimes this is uh, related to what Mike talks about, the relation with United States. And sometimes it's just a way of targeting Chinese, what you call independent thinkers in China. And so we see a slowdown, but not a stoppage. I think this is very important. As long as there is no stoppage, That is important today. And I'm a bit like Mike and Ann, I'm an optimist. We should take advantage when we can, but we should also remember that the Chinese respect us if we respect ourselves. And so we should always be very clear about what our interests are.
0: Um, Thank you, Mary. And thank you for picking up on Peggy's question and addressing it. Um, uh, There's a a follow-on on on that, um, which is from Rosie Levine. Um, The question is, what advice, if any, do you have for the next generation of China specialists who see an increasingly bleak outlook for the bilateral relationship within their lifetimes and careers. In a geopolitical environment where engaging China may be less feasible due to pressures from both the US and China side, what lessons should younger scholars and practitioners keep in mind?
3: Well, let me say that I think that younger scholars are definitely thwarted in their efforts to go to China. There's no question about that, but there is a much greater sense of materials here in this country and in around China that people can use uh, for their research. And I wouldn't count on this lasting forever. I think it will be short-lived but I think it's going to be difficult. And I think American scholars have every right to be concerned about the future.
4: I might just uh, make a couple of comments. Uh, one, I think, and it's apropos of younger people thinking about uh, how can they uh, do useful research, contribute to knowledge, and yet don't have, at least for the next period of time, perhaps the same access to either archives that our generation, right. had, or most importantly, or I shouldn't say most importantly, but very importantly to me, has been the access to people and to talk to them in a relatively unconstrained, I don't mean zero constraint, but a relatively unconstrained environment. Uh, and so I think the two pillars of research to this point are in, in jeopardy, leave it aside how long, archival research and person to person. I think though that there are really opportunities and they can be fun. Uh, I just uh, was partly by these constraints driven to a project that involved China in interaction with uh, eight Southeast Asian countries. And so there are Chinese all over these countries, and you go interview them in Malaysia if you can't in China. And China's connecting to these societies, and they're reacting to China. So, you know, you may not do exactly the topic you always envisioned earlier in your career, but that doesn't mean there aren't interesting topics that are very revealing about China. China, Belt and Road is putting Chinese communities all over the world uh, in pursuit of these projects, just as an example. Uh, uh, Also, there are Chinese communities, uh, you know, in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, I'm just saying, um, you know, make lemonade out of lemons.
0: Thank you, Mike. And did you wanna add anything? Well, I'm just thinking
2: as Mike is talking that when I started to study China, when I started my PhD, I thought I would never in my lifetime be able to go to China. It was still completely closed. And I did my whole PhD dissertation relying on you know Hong Kong, the University Service Center. So there was a time when it was possible to learn about a lot about China um, without going there. I have to say that once China opened up, it was a whole different ballgame. I mean, I loved being able to go to China. There's nothing truly. There's no. There's no substitute for that. But it was in my time and Mike's time, I guess, um, possible to get a PhD without going to China.
0: Mm-hmm. Um- Thank you, Anne. Um, I want to turn to the notion of strategic dialogue, uh, about which we have a couple questions, but let me start by a question that has come in from William Xiao, um, which sort of sets the stage for the strategic dialogue question. Uh, He says, originally the U.S. engaged China without giving significant consideration to China um, to a human rights-based and democratic nation. Now the U.S. Uh, has put the different ideology and government as the major issue in this rivalry is this a major change in the u.s position and the cause of the tension um i'm just going to put that out there if anyone wants to respond because this is a perception out there i
2: think it's mike's
0: question
4: Right. <laughs> I, 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 I tried to deal with this. That doesn't mean I have the answer. I just tried to deal with it in, in my chapter. But I, I didn't get past the first clause of the question without thinking, I, I don't agree with the premise of the question, frankly. Uh, yes, we had a strategic um, motivation, particularly Nixon and, and Mao in his own society, sold engagement with the United States as protection against the Soviet Union. And it was sold to such here, and it was pretty cold blooded, and it didn't have in that calculus, a lot of what you might call humanitarian, much less human rights content. But this gets back to what I said about engagement. Once the doors were opened, all sorts of people with all sorts of motivations Found kindred spirits, organizations, and opportunities in China. And many of those had certainly humanitarian interests, and many of them uh, had human rights or human rights, I would say, consequences. Human rights aren't just political rights, they're social and economic rights uh, as well. And in in my chapter, I just point to several things. Scientists, for instance, dealt with China trying to reduce the waste of food between when it's picked and when it's eaten at the dinner table. You know, nutrition, China contributed to the great improvement nutritional status of the world by that. I take that to be a very fundamental human right. We had early projects on clean coal certainly reducing emphysema, uh, lung cancer, and so on, is a huge humanitarian consequence. Mary was chairman of the China Medical Board. I, I mean, that's why I think if you look, if you, you say strategic, then you say government to government, you miss what was the motivation of many people. And I just, I, I don't wanna say categorically reject, but I think, most people, uh, or let's uh, just say a lot of people and organizations were motivated by something other than a strategic calculus.
0: Thank you, Mike. Um, <clears throat> I can see the quick pass on to Mike. So I'll just go on with the strategic dialogue question that Robert Keatley has set in. Um, He uh, asks, some analysts consider the past several years of strategic dialogue between the PRC and the US to be endless talks about nearly everything leading to not much of anything, while China continues to do whatever it chooses. Is this fair and accurate? In a way, I know we've been talking about this, <laughs> but I think that um, part of the conversation, the public conversation we can have, and I hope William Xiao was listening, that we're, he was actually um, on this call, that he didn't just send it in, um, because this is our few windows of opportunity to have a conversation. And so I really do appreciate people uh, raising the their perspective um, in these contexts and invite any of the three of our actual panelists uh, to answer. Uh, on that.
4: Well, the premise of the uh, the question, I, this one I very much agree with. I think that there isn't much strategic dialogue and what there is is not producing anything that as far as I can see from my outside vantage point of value at the current time. I do think it's very important that our militaries and our security communities talk to each other and be relatively transparent, but that's not happening. And so I'm left with the opinion, it's important to do, but we're not doing it. And I don't know when and how we're gonna get this uh, 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 re-initiated. But uh, the strategic dimensions of the relationship I think are very important. And I, I, I would just reiterate, for instance, it's very important that we talk about arms control. We both distrust each other. And a lot of discussion, if if both sides were serious, could at least stabilize and, and and let us... We need to answer the question, what would we each feel comfortable about the security posture of the other? What is each side doing that most alarms the other? and then trying to reach agreements. We reached agreements with the Soviet Union. It weren't They weren't ideal, but we stabilized missile and warhead levels. Uh, we had uh, open sky proposals, uh, agreement on the satellite surveillance and so forth. These are all possible with China. Now, frankly, China seems to be in the mode right now of, well, we're not gonna deal with the US on this Front until we're equal to the US. But of course, if China builds up towards equality without any control, there's gonna be the US reacting. And so the the ceiling's gonna keep going up. So I very much agree with the, the, the question that that strategic dialogue for the last, I would say five or more years, probably 10 years, hasn't gone almost anywhere. It's getting worse. But that doesn't mean it isn't important, and we shouldn't try to do it. And I hope very much that the Chinese will um, be flexible, which they have not thus far been.
3: I think it, it behooves everybody to go back and read the uh, essay on trust between Ken Liebethal and Wang Ji Su. That may be what ten years ago, mm-hmm. but uh, but I think the issue of trust is we're still with us. In fact, one of the questions has to do with trust. And so we need that trust. We don't have it now. You're right. Yeah.
0: Um, Ann, did you want to add anything here? I don't think so. Um, I was gonna say that in that piece, uh, Ken Lieberthal and Susan Thornton's chapter, they do talk about how it has always been uh, moving in vicissitudes. Um, So, um, in that sense, uh, uh, this is why this book is so worth reading because you get the density of um, knowledge and experience of how on on these different dimensions, um, uh, how it came together over four or five decades. Um, There are questions that um, are clumping together on specific issues I think people want to hear about. Um, And so maybe I'll uh, put a few of these together before moving forward. One is, um, uh, let's see, the qu- one specific issue um, that has been sent in by Norton Wheeler is how can U.S. leaders and NGOs most effectively support democratic Taiwan under current geopolitical conditions?
4: Mm-hmm.
0: It's is specific, but it, it does reflect um, a, a concrete example of the, the murky political moment that we're in and what do you all uh, expect to be possible?
3: Well, I think Norton Wheeler has written a good book on this subject, partly on this subject. I think NGOs can follow what Mike talks about. If there is an opening for conversation, take it. You should certainly have a dialogue. And that should continue. I don't think there will be that many, but you, we should s- certainly take the opportunity to engage.
0: Thank you, Mary. Um, I know we're uh, close to uh, our time, but I just want to say another issue um, that has a couple of questions here and I want to just raise, I don't know if we have time to um, answer the questions, but one comes from Dave, uh, David Atwell, in the past few years, awareness and international pressure has mounted against PRC policies and incarceration in Xinjiang. Are there lessons to be learned about Xinjiang by taking a more long-term 50-year view from successes and failures of the U.S. to temper China's policies in Tibet? And at the same time there's a question from Tim Ward, um, how should the U.S. engage China over the transition to the next Dalai Lama? So um, this is a big question because in terms of the policy um, on Tibet, which there is, you uh, in the US government, but still we haven't um, seen the appointment of the Tibet coordinator in the State Department, we're still waiting. Um, So in that sense, uh, this is a big question whether the strategy has been um, successful so far and I don't know if anybody wants to um, come in on this question before we uh, bring this to an end.
2: I can come in on the Dalai Lama, the question of the Dalai Lama succession. Um, the Chinese government has declared itself the, you know, the only body, uh, what? I don't know if, if the word is legitimately, it is the body that will choose the next Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. um, which is contrary to all of Tibetan tradition. So, um, You know, my sense is what's going to happen is that there will probably be two Dalai Lamas when the Dalai Lama dies. They'll be the one chosen by the Chinese and they'll be the one chosen by the Tibetans. And the one chosen by the Tibetans will be chosen. I mean, there, there are a variety of different traditional ways to choose the next Dalai Lama, but in any case, um, the Tibetan Dalai Lama will be chosen according to one of those traditions. Um I will say that one of the traditions is that, it, I think it's called emanation, that um, the Dalai Lama, while he is still alive, chooses his emanation who is alive, um, which seems to me to be sort of the best solution, because in that case, there's no doubt that it was the Dalai Lama who chose his own successor. But um, I, I think you know, if there are two Dalai Lamas, it's going to be a a really very, very difficult time for Tibetans. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: Um, I would say one of the most ironic in in support of what you said, Ann, moments in all of the weird moments one has in this relationship, speaking to Chen Shichan, the foreign minister and the committee had sent a group to, to Tibet and to China to look at it Uh, in the 1990s. Uh, But anyway, uh, we sat down with Chen Shichun, and he said, well, you know, the Chinese Communist Party will choose the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama. And so here you had a basically atheistic political structure, presuming itself, inserting itself into the most sacred um, religious ritual you could imagine. Right. Uh, and that's all I would say is that that's been their position, uh, I'm sure before 1990, but certainly consistently since 1990. Right.
0: Um, thank you, Mike, for pointing out the irony of what we're talking about, and thank you, Anne, for for that, uh, for taking that up. Actually, before we end, and I uh, pass it over to Jen again, um, I want to end with uh, the words that Anne wrote um, in her contribution, citing John King Fairbank. Um, But she writes, most American China specialists did not get China wrong. China changed. And so did the United States and both will change again. Uh, There's a Tibetan uh, term for this. Uh, It's midakwa, which is impermanence. And so as we continue to keep changing, things continue to keep changing it is wonderful to have the opportunity to have a public conversation about it so that we'll have some kind of shared understanding so I want to thank the, uh, the wonderful panelists uh, who uh, made this possible uh, all of you who are listening in today and especially the organizers uh, uh, Jan Barris and Margot Landman and, and the whole team at the national committee um, and I turn it over back to Jan
1: well, thank you, Tashi. I, too, am in a thanking mode. And so, again, on behalf of the National Committee, I want to thank all of the people who listened in. I especially want to thank the panelists and Anne and her whole team who wrote this book, our two presenters. But I also really want to thank Tashi. I think uh, I'm trying to remember back when we were deciding on who we should have on this program and thinking who should be the moderator. I believe it was Margot who first suggested your name and it was an inspiration because in your usual very calm and very thoughtful and very reasoned way, you've really, you've been a model for a moder- of a moderator and we really appreciate all that, that you did for us. And again, to the, just, I wanna say how proud the national committee is to be hosting an event that highlights this book because it's about engagement and engagement is what the national committee is all about. It's our holy grail. It's what we do every day. All of us are steeped in it and it is very close to our hearts. And so we wanna thank everyone who was involved in the book because we, I personally believe that if only more people would go out and read this, they would have a much better balanced understanding of what engagement has done, not just for China as the naysayers are saying, but for the United States and ultimately for the whole world. So thank all of you who wrote this book. And again, I wanna urge everyone to go out and read it and buy it for Christmas presents. It's not really a stocking stuffer, but um, go buy it and go read it. And thank you all again. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you.
0: Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at
1: www.ncuscr.org.